You're listening to That'll Preach, your weekly podcast where we talk about culture and theology. I'm Brian here with my sidekick, Paul, <laughs> my lackey, Paul. And uh, we are going to have a great show for you today because all of our shows are great. So why would we expect anything different? That's pretty high praise. That's what it's I'm talking overly about. optimistic. We usually begin for our longtime fans out there. We usually begin with a hot take. Um and uh, Brian's I've got, got one this week. I've got one today. Here's my hot take. Oh, man. I don't know if this is a hot take so much as is it, a, it is a theory, but my hot take is that Morgan Freeman was born old. <laughs> I don't think he aged. If you look at him in every movie, he's essentially the same age. You, Yeah, but you, you could definitely see him as young-ish in Shawshank Redemption. Maybe he aged, but he he was born and he looked like he was, he was 40. A man. So by the yeah. time he was yeah, actually yeah. 40, he looks 80. <laughs> he was like a fetus doing his Morgan Freeman voice. Exact. Can you imagine that? <laughs> so like a, an ultrasound goes over him and he says, you're probably wondering what you're looking at. <laughs> so I'm trying to do my Morgan Freeman. <laughs> and that was the first time I was on camera. <laughs> Andy Dufresne. <laughs> Andy, Andy Dufresne. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's true. It's difficult. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of him. It's just young. like the ultrasound is like it's just like look at your baby. Hello, mother. Hello. Oh, I got to get that deep. deep it's breath. not there. It's not there. Stick to Matthew. You get what I'm. You get what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, I, I think right, he was born. Right. I also think that Morgan Freeman, his character is the same. It's it's actually one coherent storyline. So. Let's just take his most recent movies like Bruce Almighty. He was God, mm -hmm. but then he had to shift away from that. Or maybe he lost his power as God and became a butler for Batman or not a butler. The, uh, the guy that works at works. Yeah. For Batman, yeah. 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 The, right? the, the tech guy. Or maybe he started off in jail or maybe, maybe take Bruce Almighty out of it. And it's just, <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, he's in Shawshank Redemption. He's with Andy Dufresne. He gets out of jail. Spoiler alert. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to stop being a crook. I'm going to uh -huh. make a decent living. And he gets he becomes uh, God. He becomes God. No, okay. no, I don't know if he becomes God, but he, he he gets employed by Wayne Enterprises and becomes. So you're skipping over Bruce Almighty. Yeah. Okay. He becomes the guy in uh, in the Batman movies. Yeah. OK. Um, I'm blanking on what other movies he's in. Uh, oh, the bucket list. He was in that with Jack Nicholson. It's a more recent one. He's in a retirement home. That's after he retires oh, from yeah, Wayne yeah, Enterprises. That's true. Actually, that works. It. Yeah. Yeah. What he other... plays characters like commensurate with his age. Right. All right. What other uh, characters does he play? Oh, no, I'm missing. I mean, oh, there's like Driving yeah. Miss Daisy, but that's all back in the day. Man, let me look this up real quick. I actually don't know. You're right. He's very iconic, but I can't remember him from like Morgan Freeman. Uh, seven. I've never seen it. Oh, oh million. Oh, million dollar baby. Million dollar. Yeah, right. So, That's so, right. so. Um, before he oh, gets Invictus, he was Nelson Mandela. That, okay, so here we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Gets out of jail. Gets a job because you got to start off at the low rung. Once you get out of jail, low, the low rung. He starts off as a boxing coach. I mean, million dollar baby. He hits it big. Bruce Wayne hears about it, hires him for his tech division, and then. Uh, he becomes Nelson Mandela. That he's also had a bunch of terrible movies in between. Like he was in the Olympus Has Fallen series, which are like terrible. As crappy. the president, yeah. Uh, is he the president? Yeah, I think he's. The, or maybe I, he or was, no, he's the vice. 
He might be. He's some political yeah. figure in that. Yeah. He was in Now You See Me, hmm. which is also pretty bad. He was in Glory, which we forgot. That old movie with Denzel. Oh. The uh, the African American uh, unit that fought for the right, right, the right. Union. He's been in a lot. Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. But you're right. I, I I could see that if you skip over some of the lesser known works, your timeline makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, <laughs> well, all we're saying is I'm right. But uh, take it or leave it. That's that's uh, that's what I believe is happening. You got to work on your Morgan Freeman impression. Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne. Dufresne. It's that gravelly voice. Well, that sounded weird. No, that was weird. That was like a Morgan Freeman. Let us know if I did a good, leave in the, leave a review on my, uh, on your Morgan Morgan Freeman. Freeman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, uh, let's talk about objective morality. Let's make a hard transition out of what we just talked about into what we really want to talk about. But C.S. Lewis, we're starting a new series on C.S. Lewis, particularly on his book, Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, if you guys don't know about mere Christianity, it's like a staple. It's, I mean, it's like oh yeah, it's the it's the number one book you should read outside the Bible. I'm I'm a firm believer. It's the book that if, if you become a Christian, you have to read mere Christianity. It's just like it's just like perfect. It's the greatest piece of like. What about He Motions by oh, T.D. Jakes? Ah, oh, dude, that's just like. That's almost as bad as 12 rules from Jordan Peterson. Oh. Hot take. Oh, <laughs> shots fired. Oh, my gosh. Don't. What you got against don't, the Peterson? Don't reduce Lewis JP. to that. You don't want to do that. It's like, <laughs> wow. It's like, yeah, and Jung is saying this, and it's like you don't really know, and it's like, so maybe you start to clean your room, and then. Anyway. That is scarily good. Thank like, I'm, I'm bothered by Would you just have a podcast where you act like Jordan Peterson? <laughs> Jordan Peterson's here. <laughs> Christian theology. I don't know. Imagine Jordan Peterson and Morgan Freeman having like a, that actually be pretty cool. That'd be great. That'd be great. We're getting off task. Yeah, yeah, we are. People are listening right now and they're just like, get with it. Okay. So if you guys want to join us over the next few weeks, we're actually going to be going through Mere Christianity book by book. So we're going to do book one this week. And then, you know, if you want to read book two for next week, we'll, we'll dissect it and go through it. But yeah, it is just, it is, it's a fantastic. It's the Battle Preach Book Club. That wasn't a joke. No, I don't know why I did that. you ruined it. Yeah, but Lewis, I mean, everyone knows who Lewis is. But if you don't know, we did an episode on Lewis a few months ago when we right. talked about screw tape. Right. Yeah, Lewis was, I mean, probably the most famous Christian Clive of the 20th century. Clive Staples Lewis. Yeah, what a great name. We need yeah. more Clive Staples around. Right. He was an atheist, uh, really good friends with Tolkien, and Tolkien was- Guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. Guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. You nerds out there. Yep. He's the man. (laughs) And Tolkien was integral in getting Lewis to convert to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And Lewis became a a really, he wasn't a theologian. He was a scholar at Oxford, like medieval literature, but he was really good at like taking really complex theology and making it really accessible. So this book, Mere Christianity, was basically that. Like in World War II, the British government was like, hey- Lewis, do you want to like go on the radio and inspire the Brits and just talk to them about Christianity in a way they can understand while London is having like the Dickens bombed out of it by the Germans? And Lewis was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so he gave a bunch of talks on the radio and BBC is like, is like if every American actually listened to NPR, <laughs> but there's no equivalent, like American equivalent to BBC. Yeah. Fox News. <laughs> Wait, why is that funny? I love how you said that with such a straight face. <laughs> like like we, you thought it was so obvious. We just lost oh, our man. viewers. And yeah. MSNBC sucks too. And all this, you know, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, saying? Yeah. we're becoming unhinged. But yeah, C.S. Lewis, 
one of the great apologists, defenders yeah. of the Christian faith in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. It started as a bunch of radio talks and he basically turned it into a book, yep. expanded upon it. And uh, I remember the first time I read C.S. Lewis, it was probably in- Last week. Yeah, last week, right. It's a new Christian, so last week. <laughs> and uh, I was stunned by how, how simple he made Christianity mm -hmm. in a good way. And how he would make observations about things that I'm like, oh yeah, that is true. I've always known that, yeah. but I never had words for it. And he just gave them to me. Mm -hmm. It's a really helpful book if you're not a Christian and you're interested about spirituality in general, Christianity in specific, or in particular, it's a great way to sort of remove some of the barriers to whether Christianity is logical mm -hmm. and whether it's beautiful. Yeah. I think Lewis has that sensibility of this is, wouldn't you want this to be true? Mm. Wouldn't it be great if this was true? And what if I could give you reasons why it's very plausible yeah. that this is true? Yeah. And a lot of mere Christianity, and he even says it himself, he's not arguing specifically, at least in the beginning, about Jesus Christ or <clears> the <throat> Christian God. He's just mm -hmm. trying to posit, is it possible that there is a deity, that there is a power behind all of these things, that yeah. it's that all we, that the universe isn't just a closed system of just materialism and cause and effect between physical objects or something right. like that, right. but that there could be something behind as he mm -hmm. refers to. And uh, he makes interesting arguments about why there's got to be something that transcends the created order, the mm -hmm. created realm for the created realm to make sense, especially in the arena of morality. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where, where he begins, yep. right? So he, we're, what we're going to talk about today is is how C.S. Lewis argues for the necessity of some kind of God, yeah, based upon what he calls the law of human nature, one or of the human to, morality. Yeah, one other thing to note about. So he, he's trying to get people to, you know, he's trying to make Christianity a live option for people. But the make title Christianity of the book, great again. <laughs> You, you're like, your, your conservative stripes are showing, Brian, with the Fox News. Uh, <laughs> um, but mere Christianity is supposed to be, he says it outright in the preface, like, I'm not going to argue for Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, Methodism, whatever. Like, I'm just trying to strip Christianity down to the bare bones, like belief in God and the essential Christian doctrines and make those a live option for people. And then he said from there, like, you know, we can have in-house debates as Christians about baptism, Lord's Supper, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it really is like a bare bones response, which is why it's such a good apologetic tool. And you're right. At the start, he begins with like, what can we know about God from this thing that he calls the law of human nature? And so we can dive right into that and see what happens. So one of the things that he begins with, you know, talking about morality is, uh, this interesting thought experiment, or I don't know if it's a thought experiment, but he basically says that. Anytime you quarrel about something, mm -hmm. so two people are arguing and they're trying to show that the other man is wrong, there's no reason to have an argument unless you have an agreement as to what right and wrong are, mm -hmm. right? And he, he gives the example is there's no sense in saying that a footballer, a soccer player, <laughs> has committed a foul unless there's some agreement about the rules of soccer, right? Right. Like, even if you're going... Uh, you're wrong or you're right. You're both agreeing that there's such a thing as wrong and right. Right. <clears throat> Otherwise, the conversation is Otherwise, just doesn't why make even any have sense. an argument. Exactly. An argument yep. presupposes a standard by which you compare your points or your your perspective to. Yeah. 
And it's just that common sense insight that makes you go, oh yeah, that is true. Right. I guess that does sort of at least point in that direction. And because uh, you can't argue over like flavors of right. ice cream, like you don't right. say like like strawberry is like correct or chocolate's correct. Like there's just no. But even in those, if you say strawberry is the best and chocolate is the best, you both have the same idea of uh, sweeter taste equals better or, or something like that. Sure. You, you agree yeah. that there's a, a scale. You yeah, still yeah. agree that there's something you compare it to. Yeah. And uh, and he, and he says and he and he talks about um, the law of rule. Uh, or the law of nature, which means that there are intrinsic moral things in this universe, that that there are things that are objectively right and objectively wrong, mm-hmm. despite how we feel, what we think, despite cultures, anything like that, that these are simple laws of reality in an analogous way to the way that gravity is a law. Yep. Right? Where physics have laws, mm-hmm. that there are moral laws. And uh, he says that each man is at every moment subjected to several different sets of law but there's only one of these which he is free to disobey. That's that fascinating. Yeah, because he's saying you can't disobey gravity. You're always going to be subject to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you break gravity, there's still some kind of like there's still gravity in space. There's just less of it. Mm-hmm. You know, or if you're in a space shuttle as opposed to on Earth, um, but you're always sub- subject to it. But morality is something you can actually be free to disobey. And mm-hmm. so that's what's different about the law of morality, right? He can, you can actually disobey this and, and go against what this standard says. And, uh, and I just wanna bring this other thing that he brings up, which is fascinating. On top of that, not only does an argument assume a higher standard by which to say someone's right, someone's wrong, and not only is it something that you can disobey, but if you bring it to actual historical realities, he, he brings up the Nazis, which is always great. He yeah. always bring up the Nazis. I mean, he was living arguments. in World War well, II. Yeah, He's, so this so is an very actual, applicable. Yeah, yeah this mm-hmm. is an actual thing that he was having to deal with. Yep. And what he says is, uh, what is the sense in saying, and I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. that the Nazis are wrong unless right is a real thing in which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced. Uh, if they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. Yeah. In other words, if right, if good is a universal objective reality, then the Nazis were opposing it no matter what they felt. Mm-hmm. If there is no reality above them, then that's simply their preference, just like preferring certain colors of hair. There's no objective standard that holds them accountable. They're essentially pick, you know, genocide is essentially, or not genocide is the difference between whether you like chocolate or strawberry ice cream. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a very potent example. Yeah. Well, and he, he goes further than that too. He says that they're worthy of blame because they know it. Or like, we can reasonably expect them to know that. Like, the, like genocide is wrong. That's just obvious. And the reason you blame somebody for genocide is because that kind of truth is just so obvious. Right. Elsewhere in that first section, he talks about, we call it the law of human nature because it's not the kind of thing that you need to go out and read a book to discover. Exactly. Like there just are some truths that you just have access to, like by reflection, by introspection, by just thinking about like, you know, you just look at it and you go like, oh yeah, that's genocide, that's that's horrible, that's wrong. You don't need someone to like teach you that, you don't need to read that somewhere. And so it's universal in that sense that it's imprinted inside all of us. And Lewis goes on at length about that later. 
But yeah, it's natural because it's inside of us. We don't need to look elsewhere to figure out what it is. And we can blame people for it because there is just kind of like an obviousness to it, right? You wouldn't hold someone responsible or blameworthy if they just couldn't have known that this thing was wrong, right? Even if somebody says, I don't think it's right for you to impose your morality, what are they doing? (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying that it's wrong for me to do this. Right. So they're still appealing to a, a higher standard. Yeah. So you can't avoid that. It's unavoidable. Um, and, and and he kind of takes that point and broadens a little bit because he says people, and you hear this a lot, I'm sure you hear this a lot of times with college students that you're in classes with, mm. and um, that people say, well, there is no universal law of nature no, because people in different cultures and different yeah. societies all have different kinds of moralities. And he says, that's not true, right? He talks with the Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greek, and Romans. It's like... What's actually striking is how similar they are. Right, exactly. Right? They, they understand that murder is wrong, mm-hmm. right? That you shouldn't steal. I mean, they have right. laws against all of these things. So actually, there is a consensus in humanity about things that are moral and immoral. Now, yeah. that's not saying that consensus is what creates morality, but it is saying that there is some kind of intuition that we all have as societies that, that seems to transcend yeah. culture, time, space, all that stuff. Yeah. So I love how he just kind of lays it straight. And, uh, you know, he, he love what he says. Uh, Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four. <laughs> but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you like. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's always a standard. There's always a standard. Something so, is constraining. Not saying yeah. that all cultures have the same exact applications of morality, but they all have some kind of moral sense mm. that is similar enough that you would it would give you pause and go, this seems to be almost self-evident. Yeah. I love this little, like, it's almost like a little aside that Lewis talks about. He's so, like, keen and insightful about human nature, where there's this little quote where he says, for you notice that it's only for our bad behavior that we find additional explanations. It's only our bad temper that we put down to being tired or yeah. worried or hungry. Yeah. But we always put down our good temper to ourselves. So, like, anytime we are prone to do something bad, our our, like, our instinct is to, like, you know, say that some external influence made us do it. Like, oh, why was I upset today? Well, I was hungry. I was tired. Right. But we never chalk down the good stuff that we do to external influences. We love to take credit for that, but we hate to take right. credit for the bad stuff. And it's just like, yeah, that's just so true. It's just, he gets humanity right. He does. That's what's so powerful about yeah. Lewis's writings. If, if you read Mere Christianity or Screwtape Letters or uh, The Problem of Pain or The Great Divorce, mm-hmm. these characters are so rich because he really gets what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love what he says in Mere Christianity when he says um, there are two points that he wants to make. First, that human beings all over the earth yep. know <laughs> that they should behave a certain way, right? And they can't avoid it. And the second thing is they don't, in fact, behave <laughs> that way. And that that's Romans 1. I mean, yeah. that's this reality that people are like, we we all are falling short of our own standards of how we should live, mm-hmm. right? We, I don't think you'd have to be very deceived to think that you're not immoral in any way, right? So we're constantly realizing that, even in ourselves, we don't have to be explicitly religious. We just know that we're not living up to our own standards. So we realize that we're just not hitting the mark. Right. We're just not mm-hmm. doing what we should do to the extent that we should be doing it, and we just can't escape that reality. And uh, I think that that is a really important thing to just notice. Yeah. And uh, he has an example. Maybe you can elaborate on it because we were talking about this before the podcast about 
how our feelings and our intuitions are kind of like <laughs> instincts are like keys on a piano. Yeah. And the moral law is like notes <clears throat> on a on a page. <clears throat> piano notes. What's the relationship there? Yeah. So this is the Lewis says there are a couple of objections that people have raised to that stuff that he said about the moral law. And the first objection is just that, well, why why do we have to say that there is a moral standard that's out there? Why right. do we say there's a real thing that's right and wrong? Why can't we just say that like we just have like these impulses and instincts to like to be nice, to like help people, to like raise families, to be generous. And so like Maybe it's just like a herd instinct. Maybe it's just an evolutionary impulse. Maybe it's just our psychology. And so you don't need to like posit right and wrong as like real features of the world. And Lewis's answer there is like, it's brilliant. He's just like, well, you have lots of different competing impulses and instincts in the same way that there are lots of different notes that you can play on a piano, but the music sheet tells you which ones are the right ones to play in which order. So he makes this really fascinating point that there's no such thing as a good or bad desire in and of itself. Like a sexual desire is not bad in and of itself. Sure. It's good in a context. He talks about the context of the married man, for example. There it's good. It's bad in the context of the unmarried man. You have uh, courage and like, you know, fighting and things like that. That's not intrinsically good or bad. It's good in the case of like the soldier who's fighting the just war to protect right. civilians. It's bad in the case of the, per the drunkard who's, you know, someone just, you know, punching them at the pub or whatever. Um, so they're like, impulses can't do all the work. You can't just say, well, we can explain morality because we have impulses. Lewis says, no, you have competing impulses. You have an impulse to smoke a cigarette and not to smoke a cigarette. Which one should I do? Well, we have this other thing, this, this reason, this natural law inside of us that tells us which one of those to pick in the same way that the music sheet tells us which note to play. And you know, it's not that there's one that's right or wrong. It's that in different contexts, they can be good, different contexts, they can be bad. Now. I'm kind of curious about this because you've done some PhD work on evolutionary ethics. Yeah. And Fun stuff. if this is too big of a worm to dissect <laughs> in a can, however you say it, you can let uh, me know. But that was great. Because it is interesting where <laughs> do you think that if evolution is true, that like we develop this moral intuition? Does it actually map onto objective realities or? You know, how, how would a materialist who believes that there is no creator, that everything was just the result of cause and effect from physical, purely physical cause and effects or whatever you yeah. want to define it? No, I mean, there's definitely a worry there. Like if there genuinely are these like moral facts um, and like you have a psychology that's been produced by evolutionary forces, sociocultural forces, and they're meant to like, you know. We have all these intuitions that are supposed to help us survive, reproduce, get along well with our herd, like fit well in our community. You got to wonder like at some point, like, is that really telling us what's true? Like are our feelings and intuitions telling us what's true? And there's a, there's a really strong story there, I think that says, no, there's a kind of unreliability. And I think that actually meshes in well with what we know about Christianity from the fall. Like Christianity teaches that we're fallen creatures. So the way we think about the world, our psychology, our intuitions and stuff like that is not always spot on. We need something to correct that. Um, so there is like what Lewis talking about there, there is some semblance of like God created in us a moral compass or a conscience that can track some things about the moral truth, but is also broken and distorted, which is why we like we err and we're selfish and we, you know, don't always arrive at the correct moral answers. But yeah, it's it's, it's so a complicated it could, issue. It could be like, you know, if evolution is true, you know, humans evolved and they're 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 
killing each other. Um, but that instinct to, it could be a perverted instinct to defend or a perverted in instinct to build or be, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, it's those, those instincts could have a good moral end or a bad one. Mm -hmm. And our sin makes us choose the bad one. Yeah. So to be aggressive is not bad. It just means, are you being aggressive to protect what's good or are you being aggressive to cultivate what's evil? Yeah. And uh, because of sin, we're tending more towards that. And I think sin also makes us just like, sometimes it just clouds our vision and we don't see what's right. good and moral. So, you know, it's, it's, it's broken our compass like, and so it misfires sometimes. The, the need to reproduce has a very biological function to, mm -hmm. to propagate the species. Yeah. And then uh, maybe you want to choose, creatures want to choose the best mate based upon physical characteristics or something like that. And yeah. there's some truth to that about health, but then you can't, that doesn't necessarily map on the character. So your drive to reproduce is not a bad thing, mm -hmm. but tainted by sin, it can be a bad thing. Exactly. It can lead to uh, not just like, some, I know many people use scientific arguments to say that humans aren't meant to be monogamous. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, well, what do you mean by meant to be? Mm -hmm. Do you mean that it's hard for humans to be monogamous? <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that yeah. it's bad. And I, and I think sometimes we think that if something feels natural, it's good. Feels easy. It's yeah, yeah. If it feels easy, <laughs> it's good. Yeah. And, uh, but it's not true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Lewis actually talks about that. What, what did he say about Christianity? Like it, it begins with sadness or something like yeah, that. He's like, he's, overall, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Christianity is, uh, is of un, like uncomparable comfort. But at the start, it begins with dismay because of this point of like, you realize there's a moral law, you realize you've transgressed that moral law and that's a problem. Right. And so, yeah, you don't go to Christianity if you want like a thrill-seeking, super nice, pleasant life. And somewhere else, I think it's in Surprised by uh, Joy, he says, uh, if I wanted to like live a happy life, I would have turned to a bottle of port or wine. <laughs> I would not have become a Christian. So Christianity doesn't have this just like intoxicating effect that I think sometimes we think we need to feel that it's intoxicatingly beautiful and good and nice and all this stuff. And Lewis is like, no, like sometimes it's just painful and ordinary and, you know, well, and even he, he, he has a really deep insight into how sometimes we have the wrong assumptions about things too. Like you're saying, we assume that if Christianity were true, it would, like you were saying, it be, it would make us feel good, mm -hmm. good all the time. Yeah. Well, why do you assume that? Right. And another thing that he questions is how we assume things like what science can do. So we just talked about the theory of evolution. Yeah. We can, you know, regardless of whether that's true or not, or whether it fits or not, it's just the idea that science is not, can't answer the question, does God exist? Mm -hmm. uh, because science, and, and Lewis makes his observation, he says, science is looking at what, uh, at the created order. It's looking at creation and making observations on right, creation. Right. But what we're talking about is something behind creation that transcends creation. Mm -hmm. So God is not part of the created order yeah, because he's the create, creator, mm -hmm. right? And uh, Lewis says, if there is something behind creation, then either it will have to remain altogether unknown to men or else make itself known in some other way. In other words, if God transcends creation, then we can't look at creation to find the author. No more than characters in a book can just look in their story to know who wrote it, mm. right? Yeah. Either the author is going to be completely unknown to the characters or he has to be known, or he or she, 
<laughs> has to be known yeah. in a different way. And I think this is a good doctrine of revelation that's, mm-hmm. that Lewis is really mapping onto that's really important. I mean, obviously, Lewis seems to really know his church tradition. Mm-hmm. The idea that because God is not like a creature, he's not a creature like we are, then we're not going to know him like we know one another. Right. That we're going to know him in ways that are unique to himself. Yeah. Um, and that we're not going to be able to find evidence for him in a plane of existence that he created. Mm-hmm. It, it, evidence in the sense <clears throat> of you can't study him under a microscope. Yeah. Because he transcends all microscopes and all of creation itself. Yeah. I mean, Lewis goes, I think he goes back and forth on this issue a little bit. So I think, yeah, you're right that Lewis doesn't say we can figure out that God exists, for example, by looking at the world. Right. But he does think that like creation can tell us some things about the nature right. of God, which There's is like the Romans one. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, he says, you can find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversations than by looking about a house that he has built. So, right. So you having conversation with someone, you get to know who they are, you know, their likes, their dislikes, their interests, their whatever ticks them off and stuff like that. And for Lewis, he thinks that is like the conversation that we have with God, or at least God has, has placed something inside of us that is this like conversational moral law. It gives us something about himself in a way that's more than just like looking at a tree or looking at, you know, DNA. And so it's a richer kind of, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more of like, it's not telling us that God exists, but it's telling us that this is something about the nature of God or the character of God once we have a God who exists. And yeah. it, it shows us why revelation is so important. Yeah. That God reveals himself through words, through the words, ways that we can understand in, in, in the word, the word of God, and ultimately in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So he's not leaving it up to us staring at a tree, seeing if we feel something like a butterfly lands on our head and we get, or something <laughs> like that. Um, and I think that's an important thing that that Lewis is is tracking. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and he wants us to recognize that revelation is an act of God's grace. That mm. God cares about us enough to make Himself known in the yeah. created order, just like Romans one says, yep. and also in special revelation in Jesus Christ right. and His Bible and the and the Word of God. Um, I love what he says with uh, so just just on that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, towards the end of book one, he says. It's after you've realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law and that you have broken that law and that you've put yourself wrong with that power. It's after all of this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. So like Mm -hmm. this is, it's that kind of like ground setting. Like when you talk about apologetics, this is that kind of ground clearing that you're, you're kind of priming someone, right? You're talking about like the assumptions that you have in common. Well, there's a, there seems to be a right and wrong and it's not just instinct. It's not just convention. It's a real thing out there. Okay. And now like we suck. (laughs) We don't keep that moral law. We transgress it all the time. And if there's a power behind that, now you've like done something to disappoint and upset that power. Now, like, okay, you've, you've set a framework that Christianity can speak into that. Like you, you, you've developed the skeleton of a narrative that Christianity can come and put flesh onto. And so I just love the way he sets it up from the start by taking those really just common assumptions that every, he's talking to like English people, right? So the average British person in 1942 is gonna like, yeah, yeah, there's a sense of right and wrong. Yeah, I, I don't keep my promises. I don't, I'm not as, you know, integrous as I have to be. And so that paves the way for him to talk about Christianity, which he does later on in the book. Well, he also talks about uh, 
it, talking about you as a common person. Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, I, I, I'm an, I have a person of. Did yeah. you say integris or integris. something? Is that a real word? Yeah, it just means full of integrity. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but he, he talks about uh, this life force that he's like, you know, that's what guides humanity. Yeah. <clears throat> and he says that uh, when you're feeling fit and the sun is shining and you don't want to believe that the whole universe is a mere mechanical dance of atoms. It's nice to be able to think of this great mysterious force rolling on through the centuries and carrying you on its crest. If, on the other hand, you want to do something rather shabby, <laughs> the life force being only a blind force with no morals and no mind will never interfere with you like that troublesome God we learned about when we were children. Hmm. So, and then you kind of see this people yeah. like, well, I grew up in the Christian home, but I got enlightened and now yeah, yeah. God is the force and the rivers and the trees. And he's like, well, that's wonderful. When things are going great, mm -hmm. you can have this wonderful breeze of yeah. the life force. And when you want to do something sinful, well, he doesn't care because he's just a life force. Yeah, he's yeah, just, yeah. He has no morals, no mind. And it's so convenient. Yep. And so, I mean, from a Christian perspective, that's, an idol that's yeah. a false god that's, that's god something that we create yep. mm -hmm. to uh further our own sinful desires mm. and and you think about that on a very practical level people saying you know i feel like i'm just not happy in this marriage anymore i need to get divorced mm. and i need to be mean i need to be all this stuff true to myself all yeah. this stuff yeah and uh and it's like well that's a and that's that's a false spirituality that that's and i think that's more pervasive than mm. straight up atheism yeah yeah I mean, just just on that, he he also talks about this notion of like God as good, and what what does the goodness of God tell us about the moral law? He says the moral law doesn't give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It's as hard as nails. It tells you to do the right thing and doesn't seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do so. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. Right. So this idea of like, yeah, that, that, that God, that life force who just, you know, that moral therapeutic deism, who's like, sometimes that God is there in the foreground. Uh, but when you want to do what you want to do, that God doesn't really care about your life and doesn't impose any constraints. And so, yeah, it's just that God of your own making. It's, it's the nice God. It's the, what is it that, uh, Mr. Beaver tells Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia? He's, he's not tame. Of course he's not safe, but right. he's, he's good. Right. So he's the king. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things he says at the very end is, uh, did you quote this? I might've, I can't remember if I you don't just know. said it, but he <laughs> says in religion as in war and everything else. No, no, no. That's, that's you go in for religion it. as in war and everything else. Comfort is the only, is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. Hmm. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Oh, I, and love I love what that. he says. <laughs> Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with and, in the end, despair. <laughs> <laughs> he's just amazing. Yeah. And I, I love what he's saying, though. He's like, if, if you're not looking for the truth and you're just looking for comfort, yeah. you're just going to swallow a bunch of lies. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it's not going to comfort you. Right. Because they're lies. And you're going to end in despair. But if you find the truth, <laughs> you may find comfort in the end. And, of course, I think as a Christian, you yeah. will. Yeah. But uh, I think he... What's he, what he's doing is he's prizing what's true yeah. over what's convenient. Right. And that's hard. That's hard. That's extremely hard. But you don't have to be a Christian to know that that's important. Yeah. And I think that that's what's so brilliant about mere Christianity is that Lewis is a great advocate in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. He goes, 
That's essentially what he's saying. You don't have to be a Christian to know these things are true. Yeah. Although, if these things are true, you might want to be a Christian. Yeah. yeah you know, and, he, yeah. and he's very precise with his language. And I think that's why his works have outlasted all the kinds yeah. of Christian apologetic books that fill the bookstores mm -hmm. and trying to prove everything, which are great, but they're just, there's they're something just, about they're Lewis. They're not Lewis. <laughs> they're not Lewis because I think Lewis gets, it's more than just facts. <laughs> it's logic with a sense of wonder. Yeah. But also a plain common sense approach yeah. that I think connects to normal everyday people. I'd go so far as to say that Lewis has his finger on human nature right. better than any other writer right. I've ever. Right. Like he just knows people so well and articulates it in a way that you go like, man, that's true. I've never wanted to say that to myself, but you're right. Like you've just got it spot on. He's great. It's great stuff. Yeah. Hopefully you guys will keep joining us on this series. Not hopefully, we trust we that do. you will because this is a great book. And uh, hopefully if, if you're able to share this with people, especially people who are struggling in their faith, who mm -hmm. maybe have questions, we'd love for this to be a resource. Absolutely. If you're listening and you're not sure about Christianity, if this is kind of a confusing thing, I'd encourage you, pick up Mere Christianity. Keep listening to this podcast. Be open-minded, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, see if this could be something that really resonates Let with Lewis you. surprise you. Let Lewis surprise you, as he himself was surprised there by you go. God. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Leave a review. Share this with your friends. We're going to see you guys back next week.